were comfortably settled into Exodus and you said, Second Thessalonians, where did that come from? Well, it's fall now, right? So we're, we're back to our, our series. We make our way back to that little but potent book of Second Thessalonians that we've been studying. We actually began studying this book in the middle of March this year making our way through the first three chapters and taking a break over the summer for our, our regular study through the Old Testament. And we'd come to Exodus and we've been working our way through that. But uh, now as we begin kind of the fall season back into our, our study here, we find our way to this final chapter, chapter three. This church, the Thessalonian church, was a church that was freshly founded by the apostle Paul during his second missionary journey. He, at the time, what we read in Acts chapter 16, he wanted to go to Asia. He wanted to go to the western portion of modern Turkey, perhaps to the city of Ephesus. Ephesus being that that capital area of that region, the most important city of that region. But it says in in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit stopped him and would not let him go to that region. So they decided they would go to the northern part of western Turkey, up to the north, Mysia. And yet, they couldn't go there either. So they said, we want to go even further north and perhaps up into the area and the peninsula around where Istanbul is today. And as they were beginning to make their trek there, Paul has a vision. He's given a vision of a man in Macedonia who is even further west than where they wanted to go in Macedonia. And he's pleading, come to us, come to us. And so Paul says, I guess we got to go to Macedonia. Not to the great city of something like Istanbul, not to the great city of Ephesus, the wealthy, influential areas of the world, but to one of the most poor and needy areas of the world in Macedonia. And they make their way there and they go to the city of Philippi and they find out by the riverbed some people who had gathered for prayer and They preach the gospel and they begin to see the effect of the gospel. Some of the first converts in Europe are converted there in Philippi. Ah, that must be why the Lord wanted us to go into this region. And yet they begin to experience all kinds of opposition there, even being jailed. And even in jail, the Lord converts the jailer. Do you remember that? And eventually his whole family come to faith in Christ and they're baptized. And so Paul just stays in the region. In fact, he leaves Philippi and he goes to the city of Thessalonica, which actually was the capital city of the entire northern peninsula area of Greece, Macedonia, a city of about 200,000 people, the cultural center of the day there in that region. And he begins to go into the marketplace and he preaches the gospel and a church begins to form. And you remember how it's described in Acts chapter 17, he preaches the gospel People are believing and yet people from the synagogue, Jews from the synagogue become very jealous of seeing all these people come to faith in Christ around the Apostle Paul and so they stir up a citywide revolt against Paul so significant that the believers have to get him out of the city and he runs south into Berea, not too far, but he gets out of the city 
trying to preserve his life and yet those jealous Jews back in Thessalonica hear that he's there and they go down there and begin to try to run him out of that city too and he goes down to Athens and you remember his time in Athens where he's on Mars Hill, he's preaching the gospel, just a few people converted. We don't know of any church that was actually started in Athens. So he leaves there and goes further south into the city of Corinth where he'll stay for at least three years ministering to the people in that city of Corinth, founding a church and seeing wonderful gospel fruit. And it is from that city in Corinth where he writes back to learn about the faith of those new Christians in Thessalonica. He was concerned for them because he loved them. He loved them dearly. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we remember how much he loved them. He said, having so fond an affection for you, chapter 2, verse 8, we were well pleased to impart not only the gospel of God, but our own souls to you. This is how much he loved them. In fact, he was so concerned about all of the opposition that they were facing in that region, in that church, he didn't know if they were quitting the faith, so he dispatches Timothy. You remember in 1, Timothy, or 1 Thessalonians 3, he sends Timothy to find out about them. Have they, have they maintained the faith? Have they walked away because of all of the persecution? And indeed, he finds out they're thriving. And so he writes them to talk about his concern, but also to encourage them to keep growing in the things of the Lord. That first letter that he wrote rehearsed their clear testimony of faith in Jesus Christ to remind them of what the Lord had done so thoroughly in their conversion. He encouraged the obvious love that existed among them to keep growing more and more. And then he addressed some false teaching that had crept into the church about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the return of Christ that had actually left them hopeless and he wanted them to be established in firm hope. And evidently, not all of the false teaching that had begun that he started to address in the first letter had been corrected, that more continued and more false teachers had arrived and they were influencing the church and creating quite a stir, contradicting the Apostle Paul, telling them that all of these things you're going through and you're suffering is actually the sign that you are in the final days of God's wrath on the earth, which is not what Paul had taught them. He had laid out a very clear understanding of what they should expect. But if, if Paul was wrong, then they begin to question everything. That's why he writes this second letter. The second letter, he really wants their faith to, to thrive. He wants them to live their whole life in light of the coming of the Lord. And what would that look like? Well, he wants their faith to grow and be enlarged. That's what the first two chapters are all about. And you enlarge your faith by longing for the Lord's vindication of your suffering. You enlarge your faith by standing firm in biblical instruction. That's the first two chapters. And you grow in your love for each other. And how do you grow in your love? You grow in your love, this is chapter three, by praying for each other by living a disciplined life, and even by disciplining those who are undisciplined. That's the roadmap of where we're going to go over the next number of weeks. How do you pray for each other so that our love for one another grows? How do we live the kind of disciplined life that helps us to grow in love for one another? How do we deal with those who refuse to live the disciplined life? Or to put it simply, we could sum this book up, Second Thessalonians, 
in three different ways, three appropriate ways to live in light of Jesus' return. One, you, you step up, you live worthy of Christ, that's chapter one. Then you settle down, you live by what is true, that's chapter two. Don't get so worked up over everything going on, you know how the Lord's gonna bring about the end, so settle down. And three, shape up, that's chapter three. Live a disciplined life, shape up. Now, in addition to an obvious focus on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ that we find in 2 Thessalonians, there's another emphasis that's interesting to trace through the letter, and it's how Paul approaches prayer. Throughout the book of 2 Thessalonians, we see a lot about Paul and his prayer for the Thessalonians. In chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, He's praying that God would count them worthy of their calling. In chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, where we left off back in May, he was praying that God will comfort them and strengthen them. We're going to see it next Lord's Day when we see how he's praying for them in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, that God would protect them and stabilize them as God's people. We'll even see it at the very end of the book in chapter 3, verse 16. God will give you peace in every circumstance and be with you. I mean, he's praying for them throughout. But in one place, Paul actually pauses to ask them to pray for him. To pray for him and his ministry and those who are with him in ministry as he's establishing churches in other parts of the world. That's where we find ourselves in our study today. It's Paul asking for them to pray for him in his ministry. It's another time among several that we find in the New Testament where Paul is asking those who he serves to pray in very specific ways for him and for those who are serving the gospel with him. And it's prime, prime territory to serve as examples for us to know how to pray for those who are formally called by God through the churches to go and to serve and to teach and to preach, perhaps where the gospel is not named, perhaps in churches that are established and there's ongoing ministry. This is prime territory to learn how to pray for those who God calls out to preach and teach the word of God. Back in January of 2022, we actually talked about this subject. We studied Romans 15 verses 30 to 33, and we, we unpacked a number of ways to pray for the preachers, and maybe some of you still have that list, and you've been praying through that. I was reading someone even this week who had told the elders, I still have that list, and I'm praying for that. Thank you. We want that. This is not the only time here in Second Thessalonians or in Romans 15 where Paul asked Christians to pray for him. There are several. Colossians 4, verse 3. He mentions to the Colossian believers, praying at the same time for us as well that God would open up a door for the word. Or in Ephesians 6, 19, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. Do you hear a theme when he's asking for prayer? It's not just praying for my well-being, praying that I will stay healthy, stay that I will pray that I will I will do well. It's pray for the word. Pray for the word. Paul entrusted his life and his ministry 
to God answering the prayers of God's people for the spread of the gospel. Philippians 1.19, Paul said to this church in Philippi, not far from Thessalonica, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. He was in prison and he's saying, I know all of this suffering I'm going through will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. In that little tiny book of Philemon, verse 22, he says there, at the same time also prepare me a lodging for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. It's, it's as if Paul took nothing for granted. And he found himself, as great as his ministry was, as deep as it was, as widespread as it was, he was absolutely dependent on the people that he served praying for him and the effectiveness of the work. He's not shy about asking people to pray for him. And I don't know if you've noticed, but him asking for prayer I find it very interesting. It didn't affect his view of the sovereignty of God at all. In fact, as he's asking for prayer in chapter three, do you remember what Paul had said just a few verses back in chapter two, verse 13? We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. He has a very high view of God's sovereignty, doesn't he, in salvation? Then at the same time, he stops and says, pray that the word would be effective. So which is it, Paul? Do we have to pray when God has already chosen? Paul knows that prayer is a discipline. And it's a discipline that keeps us God-centered. Have you ever thought about that? Why do you need to pray? Why do you need to pray for the preacher, the pastors, the elders, the missionaries? Why do you pray? Well, prayer is that discipline that keeps all of us dependent on the Lord and not self-reliant. You don't want a self-reliant, self-exalting, self-protective, self-satisfied, arrogant pastor who thinks that the whole ministry relies on him and is centered around him and his personality. Prayer is a way you stay God-centered. Prayer is a discipline that maintains ministerial humility Prayer is a tool that encourages greater God-centeredness in gospel work. It depletes us of self by focusing us on who God is and what God does. And prayer always reminds us who we are in front of that holy God. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, it says in Luke 18:1, he taught his disciples to pray always so that they would not lose heart in the work that he had called them to do. They wouldn't give up. They would see that their resilience was based on the provision of God. Even look at the details of the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6. He taught them to pray in such a way that they're seeking what will benefit God's work in the kingdom, not just their own personal life. If you need a little book on how to you know, accomplish that, I've got a recommendation out there for you somewhere. But here we are again with another call to prayer. Another call to prayer. You say, well, we've talked about this over and over. Right, you can never talk too much about prayer. So here we are. Another way to pray. Here's a plea for a congregation to pray for those who've been called to bring the word of God 
to pray for pastors. And I want you to see that this is a very congregational kind of focus here. He's not just talking about you as an individual, you as a church. How do you as a church come around and pray for the ones who have invested the gospel in the preaching and teaching ministry? See, this sounds like a very self-serving sermon. It is. And I like it. I want you to pray even more. So what we're going to see in these three verses, this passage is going to tell us both how and what to pray for our pastors. Just those two areas, how and what to pray for those whom God gives as elders, as pastors, whom God sends out from our midst as missionaries to other places in the world or church planters to other parts of the country perhaps or our region. How do you pray for them? And what do you pray for them? Let's focus first on how. How should a church pray for their shepherds, their pastors? Well, look at the very first phrase, the very opening line of verse 1 in 2 Thessalonians 3. It says, finally, brethren, pray for us. Finally, brethren, pray for us. That's as far as I want to go. You say, well, that doesn't tell us how. Well, that's because you're not looking hard enough. Before we get to the content, just focus on the beginning phrase here for a moment. Let me show you three, three ways you, you should pray here, how we should pray. First, pray from necessity. Pray from necessity. I, I love how Paul announces the conclusion of a letter when he still has a lot to go. Finally, he's my kind of man, you know, my kind of preacher. Finally, and I'll get to it later. Actually, the word finally doesn't mean the last thing I want to say. The word finally actually means for the rest of the things I want to say. Here's the remaining items that I want to address. For these remaining items, they comprise of prayer and they comprise of living the disciplined life. That's where he wants to end. In fact, this word actually makes a transition from material that was more explanatory and informational to material that is more exhortative, commanding, instructing them on what to do. There's a transition. So finally, and the first item under the remaining issues is pray. It's the word prosukamai in Greek, which is just the, the most general term in the Greek New Testament for the idea of prayer. It's just calling out to God, pleading with God, requesting of God, interceding. He had asked for prayer back in chapter 5, verse 25 of 1 Thessalonians. Brethren, pray for us. And then he just left it at that. Here he gets a little more expansive. We've already noted how many times Paul has been emphasizing his, his prayers for the Thessalonians. Now we see him saying pray for me now grammatically the word is what we call in Greek the present tense imperative present tense meaning something that you should always do it's an ongoing activity it's in the imperative meaning you must do this this is a necessity this has to be a priority for you it's not just a necessity for them as if, if they don't do this that they're going to suffer some kind of consequence for it. It's really 
a necessity because if they don't pray for Paul, his ministry of which they have benefited from in eternal ways will not be effective. At least that's what he seems to say here. I need you to pray so that my ministry of preaching the word will be effective. That's just so fascinating, isn't it? Really? Is the word weak? That it can't do its own word, its own work? It needs the prayers of God's people? I mean, we've already seen God is sovereign, right? He is. He chooses. He has chosen. But those of you who are diligent students of the Bible, you see this all the time. Sovereignty never nullifies prayer. It never nullifies. In fact, sovereignty actually energizes prayer. (laughs) Why do you pray? You know why you pray. You pray because you know God is sovereign and he can do this work you're asking him to do. In fact, you pray because you know God is sovereign and that he will work. Sovereignty never nullifies prayer. In the sovereign plans of God, he has chosen to work through the the prayers of his people. And why, why would he do that? Why would God choose to work through the prayers of his people? Why wouldn't he just say, work, be effective? Irrespective of who prays, why would God want to depend on us to pray? Weak people like us. What would that do to us? Oh, we become more dependent on God, don't we, when we're praying. He gets more glory and we we see more of the value of God and the abundance of God and the grace of God and the power of God when we pray. We become more mindful of those God-centered truths. Here's Paul calling for constant necessary prayers. Would you just stop for a moment and Notice what that says about what his view of the ministry was. I need your prayers. He was really dependent on other people, wasn't he? He did not see himself as detached. He was connected to them. What I do is not disconnected from you. It's very dependent on others. He's dependent on God to work through the prayers of others because Paul realized that he is incapable of fulfilling all of the responsibilities that God has called him to if God does not do the work and if God's people are not motivated to plead with God to do that work. What a deep humility in front of others. Paul is not standing over them, just telling them what to do. He's pleading with them, please pray for me. I need your prayers. In fact, one commentary, William Barclay said, there's something deeply moving in the thought of this giant among men asking for the prayers of the Thessalonians who so well recognize their own weaknesses. Nowhere is Paul's humility more clear to see and the fact that he, as it were, threw himself on their hearts must have done much to bind even his opponents to him. It's very difficult to dislike a man who asks you to pray for him. I mean, we'll see it in a minute. He's going to say some pretty hard things. And he wants them to be a people who are praying for him. You need to pray from some sense of necessity. This is our partnership in the gospel. Do you see that? It's not just one guy doing the work. 
we're all together in this and that's how God's designed it so it's not any one of us, it's all of us together completely dependent on the Lord himself. Pray from necessity. Secondly, here's how we pray. Pray from relationship. Pray from relationship. Where do we get that? What's the second word in verse one? Finally, brethren. Oh, we pass over the brethren too quick. First, I want you to see it's congregational in nature. He's not just referring to you as an individual. He's talking about all of you together. The brethren is the whole congregation and it's a specific congregation it's not just random Christians anywhere and everywhere and it's people who gather at least regularly devoted to one another who know this man as a shepherd in their life and they are committed to one another and committed to him brought together by that ministry and he appeals to them as if they are a whole people who are like family to him because he calls them brethren that's a term that says you are family to me. We are in this ministry together. Seven times in this letter he has referred to them with this term of family connection. We're spiritual siblings in the faith together. He doesn't exalt himself over them. He's one with them in this. We're tied to each other because we're born again into the same family of God's work. We're committed to one another as if we belong to each other because we do And again, this is another way for Paul to express his humility. He's not commanding them from some apostolic position, but from family relationship. He pleads with them and calls them to do what is right, what is fundamental, what is expected, what is obvious that family would do for each other. Pray. Don't minimize the brethren tags in the New Testament. They speak volumes. You pray from relationship they knew this man he knew them third a third way to pray pray from position pray from position let me show you where I get this two two little words pray here they are for us for us literally the phrase is concerning us it's not just pray about us it's not just pray for us the emphasis being us it's concerning us from what you know about us and our work in relationship to us and what we are called to do concerning who we are that's why I want you to pray We can so easily pass over this and assume that it's just a call to pray for Paul and his traveling companions, but this suggests pray because you know the work that we have concerning who we are and who were they? Who was Paul? Who was Silvanus, Silas, or Timothy to them? Spiritual fathers, they came to faith under Paul's ministry. They were apostolic emissaries. They were sent by the Lord Jesus Christ to unveil the New Testament mystery and bring the New Testament to a conclusion. They had a biblical responsibility for these people who were there. I want you to have that in mind, this God-centered responsibility as you pray for us. 
By extension, you can think of something like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, which names a number of other ministry positions like the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, who are more like the missionaries of our world, the church planters of our world, and the pastors and teachers who stay in a local area and shepherd a flock that has been established. Who are we praying for? Pastors, elders, planters, missionaries, whoever the church sets aside because they recognize the calling and the gifting of God for those areas of ministry, that's who we have in mind here. Pray concerning us and the ministry the Lord has entrusted to us. I mean, even though they're like family, he's not saying, hey, just pray for me because I'm like family. I have a responsibility within this family relationship too. So it's not just about the man, it's about the mandate that he's been given to make disciples. It's not just about the person himself, but about the priority that's been given to that person to preach the word. It's not just about the individual, but it's in light of the individual's work that you pray. And you're not just praying for personal benefit. You're praying for ministry fruitfulness. In fact, it's interesting when Paul gets to the content of his prayer, he's asking them to pray for him about things that probably would not actually impact them, but would actually impact others in other parts of the world. Paul loved this church so much. And he loved the ministry fruitfulness that that he saw there. I mean, he would say back in 1 Thessalonians 3, 8, we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. His lifeblood was tied to their spiritual vitality. He would tell them, who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? You are our glory and our joy. What kind of relationship did this man have with them? And you remember what kind of call he had on them in regard to leaders back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 12 he said we request of you brethren that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work what would be one of the greatest ways to esteem a teacher of the word of God. Pray for them. Pray for the effectiveness of their work. Pray for the preservation of their work. Pray for them. You want to see a true shepherd thrive personally? You pray from a sense of necessity, like this was a priority in your life. You pray because you know they're connected to you like family. You pray because you know about them what God has called them to do, and you intercede. Now, when you look at the way you've been praying for the elders of our church, for missionaries sent out from here, for, Lord willing, the opportunity to send people off and plant other churches, how would you describe the way you've been praying? Not just what, how much of a necessity have you felt? Have you been praying from relationship and seeing the calling of God in their life? That's how you pray. Let's pivot and learn what we should pray. What should we pray? 
That's the second part of this opening passage. What should a church pray for their pastors? We've noted in previous sermons, there's many categories of requests that can and should be made to God for those who lead the church or spearhead gospel work in a given area. But here Paul gives two more categories. Add this to your list. Just add these to your list. You're like, the list is going to get long, Pastor Brett. This could take too much of my day to pray for you. I'd be so upset if that happened, you know. All the elders of our church need prayer like this. Two more categories. First, this should be obvious, pray for the effectiveness of their work. Pray for the effectiveness of their work. Isn't that fascinating, Paul, when he says, pray for me, he pivots to say, pray for the work to be effective. It's not so much about him as an individual and a person. He sees himself totally wrapped up in the work. Pray for the effectiveness of the work. In verse 1, you pray that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it also did with you. Let's think through these, these phrases together. What does Paul mean here by the word of the Lord? Well, it should be obvious. It's a synonym for the gospel. But it's interesting Most of the time that Paul refers to the gospel, he refers to it either with the term the gospel, but when he talks about it as the word, most of the time Paul refers to it as the word of God. The word of God. Eleven times in Paul's writings he refers to the gospel as the word of God, like in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. We thank God that when you received the word of God, you received it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. When you look at the number of times that the Apostle Paul refers to the gospel as the word of the Lord, it's only three times and they're all in the Thessalonian letters. Three times. 1 Thessalonians 1.8, when the, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. 1 Thessalonians 4.15, this we say to you by the word of the Lord and here, pray that the word of the Lord will spread. Why, why the little change? Why the subtle change? Well, the use of the term Lord likely refers to the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. He had just mentioned the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 2, verse 16, just before he asked for prayer. He'd been talking about the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. So it was very clear that when he refers to the Lord, he's referring to Jesus. In fact, 20 times in 2 Thessalonians, he'll use the term Lord, and they all refer to Jesus Christ. So this is the word, it is the message, it is the revelation that comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the revealer, it is the message of Jesus Christ, it is his word. You remember Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, in these last days, God has chosen to speak to us through his son, in his son. It is the word of Jesus. It's a synonym for the New Testament mystery, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the completion of everything that God began in the Old Covenant. He is the pinnacle point. Everything has been aiming at him. All of human history will terminate at him. It is that word that comes from Jesus. And obviously it's the word that's about him, but it is from him. It is the revelation from our sovereign Lord. 
that gospel message, not just the highlights of how to become a Christian, the whole of the mystery. Everything you find in the New Testament is the word of the Lord. And what does he ask for the word of the Lord? What, what kind of effect? It's very clear. Pray that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. Now, when you read that phrase, be sure not to separate those things from one another. They have to go together. To spread rapidly cannot be disconnected from and be glorified. They go together. Yes, there are unique nuances in each of these two ideas of spread rapidly and be glorified, but they are linked together. The two words spread rapidly is really one word in the Greek New Testament. It is the typical word for run. Could be that Paul has in mind an Old Testament passage that actually refers to God causing his word to run swiftly. Psalm 147 verse 15 Psalm 147, 15 says, he sends forth his command to the earth, his word runs very swiftly. So he might have that idea in his mind. But I think he also has in mind something that all of those in the first century world would have been very familiar, and that is the athletic runner. As much as it pains me, Paul wanted them to see a runner here. I don't understand runners. I know there's a lot of you out there. I don't get you. And I know Paul's using it. I, I should, I'm not starting running, no. <clears throat> there better be someone with a gun or a knife or something if I'm going to be running. Or there's a pie in front of me or something like that. <laughs> but it is the word for run. Like in 1 Corinthians 9.24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. This is the only time that Paul uses the word run where it's not, not referred to as a, as a person, a human. It's referred to some inanimate object like the word. But think about that first century runner. I, I always, my mind goes back to walking through some of those cities in the ancient world in Western Turkey where you see the, the stadiums that they've unearthed. Those long oval stadiums where they would run what happened with the person who ran and won the prize? What was the prize? It, well, it was the wreath that they would put around their head and, and in many places they, would, they wouldn't have to pay taxes for the rest of their life. There's some monetary value to it if you won the race. You're like, well, that might make me become a runner, right? Maybe that would help. What did the runner get if they won? They were honored. They were recognized. They were glorified. They were exalted, weren't they? This is the image that Paul has in mind. Pray that the word will run and reach the end and be honored. That's what he wants to see. But what does he have in mind here? I mean, who gets honored? Well, the one who's successful. The winner gets honored. So what does is, what is a success in word ministry actually look like? Well, he's not just here praying that the gospel will spread in the sense of trying to get as many people as he can to just listen to the gospel. If he meant that, he would just say, stop it, run, just run, just spread. I want to get as many people to hear it. If that's what he meant, he wouldn't have said, and be glorified. But he wants both, run 
and be glorified. He wants it to spread in such a way that it's accepted, but even acceptance has a very specific nuance to it, doesn't it? Now again, I just want you to note, he's praying, pray for us, and he pivots to pray for the effectiveness of the word. It's not about my person, it's about what I'm doing, the work. Well, what does this mean to be glorified? Well, we get an example of it in Acts 13, 48. In Acts 13, 48, it says, when the Gentiles heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word, same term. They were glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had, had been appointed to eternal life believed. That's what it, what it means. They, they heard it and it just enraptured their soul and they began to magnify, exalt, find their hope in the word. I'm not sure we often speak this way about the gospel's embrace. And I think Paul is being very choosy about his expression here. He's not looking for, he's not asking prayer for God to have more people just outwardly affirm the gospel. It is fascinating to see what we do in churches and what we're satisfied with. How many children prayed the prayer to accept Jesus at Vacation Bible School? Oh, let's rejoice in how many it was. Or... Us Baptists, we send in this form every year about this time of all of our numbers and how many are coming and how many were baptized and how many prayed and how many professions of faith. We even rename it professions of faith. Why don't we change that kind of idea? Let's change it and say, how many have glorified the word of the Lord? How many have honored the word of the Lord? Well, that's hard to put your finger on sometimes, isn't it? To honor the word of the Lord is more than just accept it. I mean, you could accept it like a child accepts bad tasting medicine. I know I have to. It'll be good for me. I'll get well, but I hate this stuff. You could accept it like that. Do you think that's what he has in mind with honored? You think it's, it's the runner who loses, but he's a good sport about it? He just accepts it? That's not the honor that we're talking about here. We're not talking about mere agreement. When you honor something, you shower it with affirmation. You prize it, you value it. In fact, when you honor something, you inconvenience yourself for it because it's that precious to you. If something is honorable and it's valuable enough to you, you will suffer for it to keep it because you cherish it. You look at longer term joys, not just momentary passing affections I mean what would most honor your marriage fleeting excitements exhilarating date nights you're like I'd take it maybe you know what really honors marriage when we say to our congregation or we have a celebration, we get everybody together, they've been married and they've been faithful to their marriage vows. They've honored their vows for 75 years. You just stop and you look at that and say, that's uncommon. That's wonderful. How did you do that? Right? You're honoring marriage that way. When the gospel is cherished and valued, you see it, that it's not just a tool to greater personal cultural acceptance or peer acceptance no the gospel the word is loved 
even when the culture has no love for the word, you love it. You love it. The word of the Lord is honored when we joyfully, eagerly rearrange our lives, even when it's inconvenient, to live in accordance with the truth. When it defines who we are, we honor it. How many people are just so satisfied with saying, well, I go to church and I've always gone to church. No, friend, do you honor the word of the Lord because you live your life according, you make your life fit within it because you find your joy in that, your satisfaction is in it. So Paul's praying for a divine effectiveness of the gospel that it's going to run like an elite Olympic athlete and be honored and revered and celebrated and cherished. That's exactly what happened with them. When they received the word of God, they received it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Listen, we're not, we're not just going to be satisfied with seeing more people in a building. It's not enough to just really define a ministry by success because they've seen more baptisms what if more people are baptized but fewer people are actually thriving and loving God it's not successful ministry if the budget grows but people aren't biblically godly in their character if there's not a reorientation of life and a transformation of what you love and you're affectionate about, if there's not an elevation of love for Christ that shows itself in really specific devotion to Christ, then how has the word really been honored? How's it been glorified? You remember the way Jesus talked about this kind of honor of the treasure of the word of God? Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again and from, listen to this, from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has. That's inconvenient. How valuable was the treasure in the field? (laughs) Far more than anything else I have in my life so I'll give it all up because the treasure that's honoring the word of the Lord, isn't it? Or Matthew 13, 45, this is the next verse. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. And there's a little reminder in this text. They know what this looks like. You know that? They know. Do you remember what happened in you? He says, I want you to pray that the word will run like an athlete that reaches the end and is honored with victory just like it did with you. Look at your conversion. Their conversion was dramatic. In chapter one of 1 Thessalonians, he describes it. You became imitators of us, chapter one, verse six. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. That's honoring the word. Having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. 
For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. I mean, that's honoring the word of the Lord. It was so transformative. Their whole life was turned upside down. When's the last time you prayed that way for the elders of the church? Have you noticed? All of our elders are teaching the Bible. That's a requirement. First Timothy 3, they have to be able to teach. They preach from the pulpit. They teach all the time. We've got five new classes starting in equipping classes, right? That you're diligently going to, right? If you're not, join us 9 o'clock Sunday morning. You'll, you'll see our elders and, and others, but they're teaching the word. Have you prayed for those teachers? Not just the, the guy who's in front of the big group on Sunday, but all of the elders as they're teaching the word? In fact, all of our elders are involved in discipling others, counseling others, investing in the lives of others to take the word of God and bring it to bear on the issues of life. Have you prayed for the elders of the church, for the pastors of the church, that the word of the Lord would spread, run swiftly and be glorified through that ministry? And what about those that we send out There are people that we partner with in other parts of the world who are trying to get a foothold of the gospel in places where the gospel is not known. What a beautiful way to pray for them. This is an appropriate way to pray for missionaries, planters. Pray for the effectiveness of their work. There's a second way to pray for pastors, elders, overseers, those who serve as missionaries. It's found in verses two to three. Pray for the preservation of their service. Not just the effectiveness of their work, but pray for the preservation of their service. Verse two, and that we, here's the second way, that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men because not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Paul wants a kind of preservation that is greater than his life being saved or his physical person being unharmed. It's a prayer that his ability to serve in preaching the gospel will be protected and the people he serves through the preaching of the gospel will persevere. He does pray for protection, doesn't he? that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men. That we'll be rescued. Well, why does he need to be rescued? Well, there were false teachers in this church opposing what he was teaching and it was upsetting the whole flock. There were people who were contradicting Paul. They knew very well what he needed protection from because he had been chased out of their city to be murdered. Pray that God keeps us from these kinds of people, these evil people, perverse people. The word perverse literally means out of place. These are people who are out of place, people who are not in line with the gospel. They're out of place. 
And that then makes it evil. Those who represent what is contrary to, opposite of the gospel that he's preaching. Not everybody believes the message. Not everybody is defined by the faith. You will know them by their alignment to the message or their opposition to the message. I I think we'll see that and we do see that at times. We're seeing that more fervently perhaps now than we have in a number of years that when people's lives are being transformed by the gospel and the way they think and their worldview is being absolutely shaped by the gospel, have you seen how the culture that does not love the gospel responds to that? I mean, there's certain words you cannot say anymore. There's certain phrases you cannot talk about anymore. There are certain ways that you reflect life that are just simply not acceptable any longer in public discourse. Believe what you want to believe, just don't say it out loud. That's becoming more and more the thing, isn't it? So where, where, do, you think the, where do you think the opposition is going to aim the crosshairs first and foremost? Well, the people who keep fueling that, that kind of thinking and teaching the Bible... So pray that those who are teaching the word will be protected. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to have, you know, sermons and and video that's going out to to so many people. You make use of it in really helpful ways and convenient ways when you can't be here or you want to listen to something again. But have you ever thought about how many people are going on there hearing this and and they're, they're just cataloging all the ways in which they can now oppose you? It's wonderful to have the internet Let's pray for protection. And not just of the individual who's preaching, but the ministry that's being given. He doesn't want here, Paul doesn't want his ability to preach to to be overcome. So pray for this protection. Also pray for perseverance, not just protection. You see protection in verse 2, but... This is really interesting. Perseverance is found in verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. Interesting in the Greek text, the the sentence ends in verse 2 with the word, the faith. And the next word in the Greek text is faithful is the Lord. Not all have the faith. Faithful is the Lord. The Lord is the one who is faithful. Celebrated throughout the Bible. I won't take all the time to go through it, but verse that we talk about a lot around here no temptation has overtaken you but such as is I now now know how many of you are in counseling because that's the verse we use all the time no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man what's the next phrase and God is faithful will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. He's faithful. Didn't say you're not going to go through trial. Didn't say you weren't going to go through hardship. You are as a Christian. Your flesh is opposed to the gospel. Let's not just blame the world. Your flesh hates the gospel. (laughs) My flesh hates the gospel. We're going to go through hardship. What do you hang on to? What do you pray for? God is faithful. He will not allow you to be overwhelmed by the temptation to abandon the gospel. He will preserve you. He will keep you through it. He's faithful. The Lord is faithful. Again, the emphasis is Jesus. Not just 
God the Father, but Jesus is faithful. I mean, if you want to know the theme of the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, look at Jesus being faithful. He is faithful to what God sent him to do. There is no more faithful person. There's no more faithful human being in all of the world history and all of the people mentioned in the Bible. Who's the most faithful of them all? Jesus is faithful. He came here and he accomplished everything that the Father sent him to do. Isn't that what you say at the end of every week? I did everything God wanted me to do. No, Jesus finished every day. He finished every moment and he was absolutely faithful to everything God asked him to do and he did that so you could trust him. Rely on him. He is faithful. Faithful to do what? Do exactly what we need to strengthen and protect you from the evil one. To strengthen you, to make you stand up and stand firm as if immovable. You're in the midst of a conflict and a battle and a war. He is faithful to keep you upright. In the battle, he will not leave you He'll be faithful to you to keep you steadfast and keep you from being overwhelmed by the evil one. Not just evil people, but the one who is behind all of the evil schemes. The one who would love to take you down to dishonor the word. God will be faithful to keep you upright so that you glorify the word. Even if the devil were to take your life, go down glorifying the word of the Lord. What can he do to you? Send you to God? That's rough. Help you enjoy eternity? Free from all the sin? Yeah, you remember the account of Job, don't you? Probably the oldest book in the Bible. We're so thankful for the first part of the book of Job that gives us the scene in heaven that shows us what's going on. I mean, we're thankful and we're mesmerized by it because Satan says, basically, show me somebody I can go after and I'll make them dishonor you. And God says, how about Job? I mean, we're all just trembling when we read that. Please don't use my name, <laughs> right? Don't use my name. You've got other people in the church in mind. They're, get them. Use their name. And God keeps Satan on a leash, lets him go only so far. Job doesn't understand it. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Did, was God faithful? Oh, he lost so much. It was so mind-boggling. But you don't read that book and see that book without coming to the conclusion God was faithful. There was nothing Satan could do against him, ultimately. When's the last time you prayed this way for preachers? Not just that they would be protected, but that the people who are embracing the word would persevere. The greatest sign of the effectiveness of the word in a preacher's life and ministry is the people who persevere in trial and love Christ more at the end than they did the beginning. It's not how many it's not how big, it's not money, it's, it's not any of the trappings that the rest of society would look at and say, that's the mark of success. How many and who 
Did we see the faithfulness of God in to preserve their love of Christ and the word that they embraced when it was preached? I'm telling you, those pastors who love the scripture and love the truth of God deeply, they are so overjoyed and satisfied when they see the work of the word alive in the members of their church. That thrills our souls. Thrills us. That's a helpful way to pray for those who preach the gospel. You know, the apostle is going to say some hard things pretty soon. He's going to command them. He's going to talk to people that he probably knew. He knew their names. He's going to talk about them. They know who he's talking about. Hard stuff. Paul is not disconnected from that. He's in it with them. He's praying for them to to do what is right because what will preserve the work of the gospel is at stake here. And he starts, before he ever gets to that hard stuff, he's like, I'm in this with you, so pray for me. Pray for me that what I'm, I'm doing in the work of the word is going to be preserved. And that you're going to be persevering through it. This is mutual discipleship, isn't it? So I want you to think about how you could pray this week for those who are preaching the word. And how that looks in your own heart, your own life, your own fellowship together as a local church. Let's pray together as we finish. Father, as we finish our time of study in the truth, we pray that you would help us to be more committed to the discipline of prayer and praying for those that you've called out and whom we have sent and we have charged seeing your giftedness in their life, seeing the responsibilities that you've put on their shoulders. We pray that we will intercede for them from a place of necessity because of the relationship we enjoy with them as family in the faith and in light of what you have called these men to do, we pray the work will be effective. We pray the service that they render will be preserved. We pray for a solid, stable, thriving people who love the truth, live their lives according to it, turn from sin, embrace the joy, the long-term joys of life in Christ. Lord, I also want to pray for those who are outside the faith. I pray that they would see this kind of love for one another. I pray they would see the effectiveness of the word like we just saw in Reggie's life in baptism this morning. Someone who's raised under the word and has always affirmed it, but now we see how he honors it. I pray, Lord, that those who don't know Christ will see that kind of fruit. You'll use that as a means to encourage them of the value of Christ, the lordship of Christ, the goodness and faithfulness of God. Lord, we entrust this work to you. You are the one that makes it effective by your grace. Help us to simply be faithful in our service to you. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.